Healthy Hacker, episode 17. Hello and welcome to The Healthy Hacker, where we talk about programming puzzles, memory fitness diet, and everything else that you, a healthy hacker, find interesting. I'm Chris Hunt, and this week, we've got a special guest, Mr. Ed Cook, who is a grand master of memory, which means he is one of the few people in the world who can memorize a shuffled deck of playing cards in less than two minutes. And if you were to sit him down and give him an hour of time, he can memorize a thousand random digits or 10 shuffled decks of playing cards. Not only that, but Ed is also the co-founder and CEO of Memorize.com, which is a really fun and surprisingly effective system to learn anything. Memorize.com is what I used to originally learn how to memorize my first shuffled deck of playing cards, and I did it in less than five minutes. So you should totally check that out. Ed's going to come on the show, and he's going to share his thoughts on memory training, imagination, perception, and the future of learning. Before we get into that, though, let's do the workout of the week. The workout of the week is a section where I take a workout that I've done recently or seen recently or someone's told me about and I share it with you and hopefully sometime this next week, you'll get a chance to try it out. And I'm going to try this out tomorrow because I'm going on a trip and this workout is perfect for not having a gym. So let me tell you how it goes. Really simple. You have three exercises you need to do, a push-up, an air squat, and a sit-up. All three of those are pretty self-explanatory. Here's the workout. 20 total rounds of five push-ups, five air squats, and five sit-ups. So since you're doing 20 rounds, that means you're going to be doing 100 reps of each of those things. But because you're breaking it up into these smaller sets of five repetitions each, it's going to be a lot easier than just busting out 100 reps in sequence. So a push-up you're probably super familiar with. You start out in a plank position, which is just where your arms are fully extended, your face is facing the ground, your body is flat like a plank, then you bring your chest to the ground and then push your chest back up straight again. That's a push-up, so you're going to do five of those. The next exercise is an air squat, and an air squat is just doing a squat with no weight, just air. That's why it's called an air squat. The key things to remember with an air squat is remember to get your thighs past that parallel point. So you want to dip your butt nice and low so your thighs are below 90 degrees, below that parallel point. And the last exercise is going to be five sit-ups. Also pretty self-explanatory. You want to have your back on the ground, your knees up in the air or flat on the ground, whatever's the most comfortable, and just bring your hands forward and touch your feet and then come back down again to touch your shoulders on the ground. If you want to see videos of each of these exercises, if that helps you learn, then go to healthyhacker.com slash 17 and I'll have links to videos of each of these exercises. So again, the total workout is 20 rounds of five push-ups, five air squats, and five sit-ups. That's it. Have a good time. And now let's head on over and talk to Ed about memory training. You have this amazing title of Grandmaster of Memory, which I think that you earned 10 years ago, approximately. And I would love to know, first off, why you even decided that was something you wanted to do, but but also, what is a Grandmaster of Memory? What are the things you need to do to get there? And and what are the steps you took to become this this magical thing that not very many people get to have? Okay, well, so um, 
But I might begin with how I got into memory techniques, which mm-hmm. is um, a faintly amusing story, which is that I was, I, I, at about the age of 18, shortly after leaving uh, high school, uh, as you'd call it in America, I, um, I got ill and ended up in a hospital for um, about three months. And um, I had a, um, a kind of reactive arthritis, which is sort of sounds quite scary, but it basically just means your, your joints are swollen, and which landed me, oddly enough, in a, in a ward full of octogenarians um, in, uh, in the local hospital. And so I had a most incredibly boring three months um, listening to people having the same conversations day after day after day and with apparently no, no memory of what was going on before. Um, and I was also sort of a bit disturbed because you know we have this thing called a gap year in the UK where people head off uh, around the world traveling between school and university. And yeah, and so there was I in hospital. All my friends were kind of motorcycling around India and falling in love and being quite you know entertaining. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was like, well, I may as well kind of find a positive here. And um, uh, a friend of mine actually bought me um, three books, um, and for two books and a, and a set of recordings, he bought me like 12 recordings of Don Giovanni saying, if you listen to them all several times, you'll learn to tell the difference and you'll, you'll appreciate that forever. Um, so I was not quite sure about that. And then he bought me a Teach Yourself Russian book and a, a book about memory techniques. And so I thought, well, actually, I'll begin with the memory techniques and then I'll move on to the rest. So I really got into the memory thing there. And, you know, it's great when you're starting a hobby if you have sort of six hours a day to practice it because you kind of get over all the early early uh, bumps and you kind of you go deep. And it soon became apparent that this was an amazingly good fun way of, um, of drawing um, hordes of pretty nurses to my bedside <laughs> to be amused and impressed. And, uh, and so that was the kind of the early motivation and context. Uh, but yeah, so anyway, so, so I kind of, that was when I first learned to do things like you know, memorize a deck of cards in, in under a minute or um, learn long strings of poetry or numbers or, or things like that. Um, and for the next sort of couple of years, it remained largely just an amusing trick. The idea being that you would um, drunkenly say to the barman, you know, I tell you what, I, I bet you a bottle of champagne that I could remember this deck of cards. <laughs> I know. You're clearly so drunk, it's never going to happen. And then you nail it off. And um, that was quite entertaining. Anyway, then so... Midway through studying, um, so I was studying psychology and philosophy at Oxford at the time. As that began to progress, I had more and more need to memorize stuff for, you know, for psychological experiments and statistics and so on. I got back into it a bit more seriously. And until that point, I had no concept of the World Memory Championships. But around this time, I, I became aware of them. I kind of looked up the scores people were getting. And then I, and then I started sort of making claims to my friends. I was like, I, I can't. I can win this day, I, I, you know. And um, and so my housemates at the time kind of packed me off to Kuala Lumpur, which was uh, where the uh, 2000 championships were happening. And memory championships are quite hilarious things, you know. It's sort of between 50 and 150 um, geeks, basically, from all around the world, mm. competing in, you know, what's really couldn't be a more boring-looking thing, you know. Rows of tables, like an exam... Um, and just like doing this massive competitive memory memory competition for three days, you know, where you're asked to remember, you know, as many digits as you can in an hour, as many binary numbers as you can in half an hour, um, loads of random names and faces, um, various different formats like um, sort of randomly computer generated messed up images, which you have to <laughs> memorize in order. Um, and it was there that I um, recorded the scores, which won me the title Grand Master of Memory. Um, and so what I had to do there was to learn a thousand-digit number in an hour, um, a pack of cards in under two minutes, 
and ten packs of cards in an app. And so that, that that was that how that how that happened. I've never competed in memory sports, but I have watched some videos on YouTube, and I must say they are absolutely hilarious to watch because people seem to have like they're doling every other sense. They have horse blinders yeah. on. They have like noise canceling yeah. headphones. It seems like probably one of the most boring sports to watch. I would think. It's pretty incredible. Yeah, funny enough, my, my, my great rival um, when I was doing memory uh, very seriously was a guy called Dr. Gunter Carsten, who was a um, former German athlete turned memory uh, guy. And he took more seriously than anyone else the art of um, minimizing perceptual input to focus as much as he could mm. on um, his special event was random strings of binary numbers. So he could remember 3,500 binary numbers in 30 minutes. As a one zero zero one 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 zero one zero zero. Anyway, uh, so he had this thing where his he had sunglasses blacked out with paint on the inside, noise cancelling headphones, and so literally his entire consciousness was like a, uh, suffused by the binary digits, a kind of amplified approach to uh, to the perception of what he had to remember. And you know, it was very effective, very effective. Well, I was when I was trying to um, educate myself on what a grandmaster of memory was. I noticed at the end, I believe it was at the end, either the end or the beginning of the 2013 World Memory Championship, they have redefined what this title is. Did you see that? I, I was unaware that there was a redefinition. Yeah, this this is interesting. You get to keep your title for life, but what I mm-hmm. but what was interesting is the way that they've changed it, it's no longer as interesting for people who aren't in the sport because now the definition is you need to get 5,000 points in the World Memory Championship, and you need to be a top five competitor. So as someone who, who doesn't compete or have, who have, know anything about the sport, that means nothing to me now. I have no idea yeah, what 5,000 points means. Uh-huh. It's not as awesome as being able to say, I need to memorize 10 decks of cards in under an hour, one deck of cards in under two minutes, 1,000 random digits in an hour. Right, that, that does sound like a, um, a poor decision. I, I've, actually, I've always thought that it should be a slightly more demanding target. I, you know, I think it should be um, 15 decks of cards, 1500 numbers and in less than a minute. Less than a minute's a good goal. That's I, I remember that was actually my introduction to um, memory sports in general. Mm-hmm. Uh, I originally wanted to learn how to memorize things because, um, like I mentioned in the beginning, I love solving the Rubik's Cube and mm-hmm. there's a element of competition of doing it blindfolded. Yeah. And so I learned a very, very specific technique for memorizing the Rubik's Cube blindfolded, but didn't really understand or have any interest in applying that generally. Right. Like, how can I memorize other things? Is Yeah, what is the technique? <laughs> sure, sure. So um, the very first mm-hmm. method I learned was just to take each piece and turn it into an object. So like green and yellow would be a banana, you know, yellow and red would be ketchup or a hot dog, ketchup and mustard kind of thing. So um, turning each piece you know, it could be based on the colors or it could just be on what you think of when you look at that piece, but turning each piece into a specific picture and then mm-hmm. memorizing the order of the pieces. And memorizing the order is building a story with those pictures, imagining uh, a banana walking down the street, slipping on a ketchup packet, that kind of thing. And the order that you memorize is actually the solution that you're going to apply. So people that are solving blindfolded solve the cube in a very specific way. It's a very simple solution because your eyes are closed, so you want it to be as simple as possible. So you always Mm -hmm. start in the same position in the Rubik's Cube. Most people start in the upper right-hand position, and they ask themselves, where does this piece need to go? And then they take the image Mm -hmm. for that picture, 
and they attach it to where it needs to go. So they, they say, where does this piece need to go? Oh, it needs to go in the bottom left. So then they look in the bottom left and they find what piece is in this spot. And that's going to be a different picture. So then they link those two images and then they say, great, now where does the piece in the bottom left need to go? Well, it needs to go in the bottom right. And they continue to do this and travel around the, the puzzle in the order that the pieces mm -hmm tend to travel naturally when you keep asking yourself, where does this piece need to go? Where does this piece need to go? And eventually you hit every piece in the puzzle and you've built this elaborate story. So that was the very first way that I memorized. But that was actually difficult for me because I was too lazy to come up with images for every piece. Mm -hmm. So what I, what I tried doing instead was just tapping around the puzzle in the order that they needed to go. And when I did that, for some reason, I was able to see a, uh, a shape and this sounds similar to what you were describing in the competition. It was just, it's literally just like a line. It's, it's like a, it's like a three-dimensional line. It usually looked like some kind of a star or like a square or like a circle or something mm -hmm. like that. And then using that, you can solve the cube because you know the, the ordering of where the pieces need to go. So those are the, those are the right. most popular. But then back, back, mm -hmm. back to cards, there was a competition in a, I don't know what it was, like a partnership or collaboration with Tim Ferriss, decided to offer $10,000 prize to, you know, the first person who could go from having no memorization experience to memorizing a shuffle deck of cards in less than a minute. And uh, I thought that was amazing. And that's how I first discovered you, actually. I was mm -hmm. looking for how to do this. And I found a video of you on YouTube walking around in the snow in uh, <laughs> London showing all these, these images of, of crazy people doing these things and, and demonstrating how to memorize a shuffle deck of cards. Would you mind talking about the process of, of memorizing a deck of cards? So sure, yeah. So the, um, the tricky thing about, um, well, there are two tricky things about memorizing a deck of cards. One of which is that the cards themselves in their raw form are not interesting or differentiated. There's very few people have a strong difference in their emotional and kind of cognitive reaction to the seven of hearts and the six of hearts or the king of diamonds and the king of hearts. You know, these aren't um, these aren't vivid kind of interesting mental objects. And then the second thing is that the structure of the order is also kind of unmemorable and undifferentiated. It just feels like a random sequence. It's not like a story or um, you know the arc of a of a journey around a town or something. It's not each place in that sequence. Um, it's not really distinguished from the others, um, except perhaps the first one. Yeah. And so the the technique one uses is therefore to use a kind of images, which one wrote memorizes in advance, to transform the cards into a form more amenable to the imagination. And so um, the technique I use, um, and it really can be any association you like, is I have 52 different people, each of whom... Um, corresponds to a card. So the four of spades is you know, Frank Sinatra, the king of hearts is Nelson, a great British admiral, the seven of diamonds is Shane Warne, an Australian cricketer. And so I just randomly chose these associations a long time ago for reasons I can't really remember. And um, that has become like a very small foreign language vocabulary. So on seeing the seven of diamonds, it becomes Shane Warne in my imagination almost instantaneously. That's sort of in the same way that when you look at the Spanish word, whatever, mesa, you think, ah, oh, table, you know, if you speak Spanish. Mm -hmm. It's the same thing. Um, or, or in English, you know, when you hear the English word table, when you think of a table. So just a kind of pure rote association between an arbitrary symbol, the card, and uh, an image. And, um, yeah, and so, you know, we have a tremendously uh, rich and differentiated concept of different humans. So by um, remembering humans instead of cards, you've already like vastly improved your capacity to remember. Because thinking of like Frank Sinatra talking to Nelson while Shane Warne is, you know, having a chat with um, Anna Cornick 
Bieber, and then meanwhile Bieber Rackets from the A team is whatever. So the uh, the characters themselves um, basically massively intensify and differentiate the cards. Um, and the second trick is to to basically create a story to establish the sequence. Um, but you do this in a specific way. You do it by unfolding that story through space. Um, you could actually just do it all in one spot in your imagination. So you could just imagine a story happening at a single location, but reality doesn't really work like that. And, um, and secondarily, space has a wonderful capacity to differentiate itself. So, mm. so what you end up doing is you... You begin you know, somewhere familiar. It actually doesn't have to be somewhere familiar. You can actually, interestingly, make up the space if you need to as you go along. But normally you begin somewhere familiar, so like your front door or something, um, and then you leave the first card there. So say it's four of spades, that'd be Frank Sinatra. Go, Frank Sinatra's on my front door. Walk down to your garden gate. These are the garden gates. Seven of diamonds. Okay, that's Shane Warne, Australian cricketer, kind of fat, um, sort of a bit rude. Um, he's there being fat and rude. And then, and then you keep on going. So you say, okay, well, now I'm going down the pavement. And then you, as you're turning the cards over, you're going a little journey in your mind. And you're um, associating these people, which stand in for cards, at the locations that you come to. Um, and the staggering thing about it is that it requires almost no extra cognitive training to be able to do this in its basic form. So if you walk around with somebody just around a street mm -hmm. and you tell them 52 people, if you just walk with a friend and say, okay, and a street you've never been to before and say, okay, let's imagine that whatever Frank Zappa's in the door over there. And then on top of that skip, there's um, whatever, uh, you know, Britney Spears, etc. You know, if you just do that with a child, a friend or whatever, and then you test them, that I should be able to remember without any training whatsoever where those people are, what they did, because it's just interesting. It's amenable to our way of perceiving meaning and integrating uh, memories. And so really all you have to do to remember pack of cards is learn the code for your people and then just practice translating the cards really fast and imagining them into locations in a vivid fashion. And that takes some time, and to get it down under a minute, it takes some, um, some fairly aggressive mental uh, gymnastics but it's not, there's nothing about it which is like cognitively unusual. I like to give the analogy that the speed at which we perceive meaning in speech is in fact five or ten times faster than the speed at which I can perceive meaning in a pack of cards and remember it. Mm. So to give you an example, if I were to say to you, you know, so I mean, because the basic question is how, how fast can the human mind create meaning which encodes information spontaneously. And I can do a kind of test with you, Chris. So I might say something like, um, and I'm just going to give you a string of images really fast and we'll see, see how you do maybe remembering them. And so like, okay, there was a like enormously fat Viking in a hammock. So he gets out of the hammock, takes a golf club and whacks a cat. The cat flies across the room, lands in a bucket, which uh, splashes water all over uh, the Pope. The Pope's furious, picks up a canoe, throws it through the window, and the canoe goes flying out the window, but in the canoe there were two little girls, and the two little girls are screaming like crazy, and they hit a very steep grass bank, and as they're going down the grass bank, suddenly enormous cheeses are rolling next to them down towards a cliff face, and they go flying off the cliff face, and they land in a little rowing boat where um, you know, an Adolf Hitler impersonator is, um, is watching a Jude Law film uh, which has monkeys in it. That's a lot of stuff. All right, let's try it. Uh... So bring it back to the beginning. Yeah. Um, somebody in a hammock. Yeah. Who's who's in the hammock? Yeah, I think it was a Viking. It fall, falls out or, or like grabs a golf club. Yeah. Uh, hits something with a golf club. Was it a dog or a 
cats, maybe? Yeah, 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 that's right. <laughs> Lands in a bucket of water. Um, very good. The, the uh, water falls out on, I splashes the Pope. Very good. Um, the Pope uh, does something... Pope, it some something with uh, girls in a canoe. I don't like. Yeah, very good. Yeah, yeah, I, yeah. I forgot that connection. Girls in girls in a canoe going down a grass hill, um, followed by some cheeses, mm -hmm. uh, and then um, there's like a Hitler impersonator. Once they land in the water, watching a, a film with Judy something. Yeah, and what else was in the film? Monkeys. Monkeys. Yeah. Yeah, very good. Amazing. <laughs> okay, so, <laughs> so just to run through that, so we had like hammock, Viking, golf club, cat. Bucket, water, Pope, canoe, little girls, grass bank, cheese, cliff, rowing boat, Jude Law. Oh, so Hitler impersonator, Jude Law, monkeys. So kind of, I don't know what that is, a sequence of 15 things. And yeah. you know, the story took maybe 15 seconds to articulate. And so um, you, you see, this is actually kind of actually, you know, a normal feature of the human imagination that we can encode new imagery and meaning at this pace. Um, and I suppose like, the art of memory is to um, to take boring information or information which doesn't inherent, inherently have this imagination amenable uh, structure and transform it into that structure so that it becomes um, mem memorable. I was thinking that I, I might be able to become a, come up with a programming analogy. Um, we, we have quite a lot of banter in the office because I know nothing about coding, but um, but have picked up all the terminology over the years. So um, yeah, you basically have to make a cognitive compiler, which will you know you input um, boring information and output that information in an imaginative form, um, and it's much easier to digest and query. I guess relating to programming, then mm -hmm. you have. A company called Memrise. Yeah. Memrise.com. And this is this is what I used actually to memorize my first deck of, of cards. Would you mind talking a little bit about what this is and how it helped me memorize? Because it worked really well for me. The idea of Memrise is to take many of the things which are, if not difficult, but then at least just a bit of an annoyance with memory techniques, like um, the formation of vivid images and thinking of the associations you might have, uh, and also a lot of the reminders and testing, which are necessary for storing memories in such a way that they're going to last in the long term. And, and to basically you know, implement all of that in, in um, you know, a web app, a mobile app, and, uh, and therefore to give people the experience of kind of superior memorization without necessarily having to do all the, the training and um, with all the uh, you know, associated risks for your social life sort of thing. <laughs> so yeah, so Memrise is um, it's like a crowdsourced platform where people enter more or less anything to um, remember stuff. And so that, you know, it's mainly languages, so very good for Chinese characters and French and German and Spanish and it's like a game-like mechanism. Uh, you just go through, it shows you words and shows you images created by the community, mnemonics to help you remember the words, and then the words build up into phrases and, and you go along and it, it tracks each of your memories. So it's like, ah, this person has you know, seen this thing twice, second time they got it wrong, their memory curve looks like this, so we're going to remind them of it in six hours' time. And, so, and there's kind of a gardening metaphor. So like your memories are like a garden, you grow seeds and then you come back and water them. And so in the case of the cards, we built like a special thing, which had a similar, similar concept, you know, so I proposed a bunch of images for all the cards, according to a system, which I uh, also explained in a um, rather silly YouTube video. Uh, and um, it would 
teach all these associations. So you'd learn all the associations between the cards and the people. And there's a little hack you could use to, to do your own associations, which is always a good idea because, um, you know, the art of memory is really exploiting your own semantic space rather than someone else's. Um, although it can, can interestingly work with someone else's. Anyway, um, yeah, and then there was a little um, game you could play where it would show you, you know, 52 cards in sequence. And then at the end of it, you'd have to drag and drop them into an order and then check whether they were right. It was a great fun little competition we did with Tim Ferriss uh, to do this. So Tim rather munificently offered a $10,000 prize, and, uh, but we had thousands of people try it out. And um, there was a lot of people who got quite good quite quickly. It was really impressive. Um, and, the, and the girl who won, who's a guy called um, Rina Zagats, she was mm -hmm. a Ukrainian programmer, actually. She'd learned to do it in a preposterously short amount of time. Um, I think she only heard about the competition about a week into the competition and just spent like four days or, or something practicing this thing. Didn't even do it that many times. Maybe did it like 30 times or something, yeah. going through practicing the thing. And then she nailed it in under a minute. And at the Memorized Christmas Party, we got her on video link on Skype and got her to do it again. Um, and so, you know, it, it's, it's, a very, um, it's a very achievable thing, these sort of memory skills. And, and there are many different things you can memorize with them. In fact, I think in life, there are actually surprisingly few things you actually want to remember. <laughs> <laughs> but you can kind of adapt them to many purposes. And, um, and, and one of the things I think which is most interesting about them is um, what they say about the structure of cognition more generally. Mm -hmm. so, so really what these memory techniques teach us is that in order to have something in our mind, and that could be thought, perception, imagination, it has to be concrete. The more emotional it is, the better. And then in order for it not to get confused with something else, it has to be situated either literally or kind of metaphorically in a spatially distinct sense from other things. And I think, you know, when one considers the difficulty of abstract thought, the confusions which typically occur when one's trying to solve problems, most of one's strategies are basically finding ways of visualizing the problem in a way which separates out the elements into distinct spatial locations, which can then be logically related. And so obviously, like in any um, office, um, in a startup sort of thing, whenever a really difficult problem comes up, you know, people flock to a whiteboard, begin drawing diagrams, mm. and it helps hold apart in our minds different competing thoughts and it allows us to to pay attention to them individually so as to enrich our concept of them without allowing the kind of peripheral presence of some other thoughts to interfere there's, i mean this might be interesting to you to your listeners the there's a great piece of software which is kind of uh, for actually for abstract thought called austhink a-u-s-t-h-i-n-k um, com. it's actually a kind of useless UI in a way by the standards of uh, West Coast American startups but it's invented by a philosopher called Tim Van Gelder who was a pretty serious philosopher in his own right Australian guy and um, it's this whole way of um, mapping arguments which is all about like discovering premises and co-premises and then spatially relating them on a map and it's a phenomenally powerful quite, quite incredibly profound actually way of boosting the quality of your abstract thinking um, and, and in my mind sort of fundamentally a, a mnemonic technique it's about separating stuff out in your imagination so that you can focus on one thing at a time and see relationships interesting it sounds like a mind map have you heard of mind mapping yeah yeah i have heard of mind mapping it's a very similar concept this this happens to um follow a kind of a logical tree structure but um but it's exactly the same concept so something I saw on the uh, Memorize blog, because I've been reading it lately, it was announced a week ago 
um, is this thing called the Memorize Prize, mm -hmm. which sounds like a competition trying to improve the way that you've mentioned even earlier about how we learn things. What's the best way that people can learn new things? Can you talk a little bit about that, the Memorize Prize? Yeah, so we're super excited about this. So, you know, at Memorize, we have a, a methodology we've worked really hard on, um, which um, on a lazy day we might think of as fairly optimal for speedily memorizing information. So, you know, reminders, tests, sophisticated adaptivity, yada, yada, yada. Um, and, you know, this comes from a very incomplete, fragmentary cognitive science from which we've cherry picked the stuff which we think looks most promising, yeah. a bunch of experiment and a bunch of intuition. Absolutely no idea um, whether how close this is to the top of the mountain, whether it's even vaguely close to the top of the mountain, and, and neither does anybody else. So um, it's in the nature of science to seek to establish when there are causal effects and to isolate them from each other. So that um, it's really a question psychology hasn't asked at all. It's like, what's the best way for people to learn? They've said, you know, okay, well, we know that it makes a difference if you actively answer a test. We know it makes a difference if you're reminded of evidence that mnemonics make a difference, that certain kinds of interference effects make a neg negative difference. But it's the difference between a very sketchy form of Newton's laws of motion and inventing the steam chain. The difference between where science is now and the discovery of the best way of exploiting that science for mm. learning. So you said, so this, I'm always getting this story in the wrong order because that's kind of, this is the, the background motivation. But <laughs> the prize itself is, it's a $10,000 prize again. Um, and it's for the team who, team or person who can come up with the most effective learning system in which um, a bunch of random experimental participants can learn for one hour foreign vocabulary and then be tested again, having not seen it in the intervening period, one week later. And um, the question system you can give those people, which re results in the maximum retention one week later. Yeah. We're pretty excited about this, and we're getting a lot of interest from quite, uh, quite interesting kind of cognitive scientists <laughs> and, and, uh, and also just a lot of um, like enthusiasts for spaced repetition and so on. And, and the idea of it really is to say that a lot of um, learning technology is frankly like pathetic. And a lot of the stuff which travels under the banner of science is also pathetic. And in fact, often like proven already by science to make no difference whatsoever. Um, and this is a real shame. And there isn't really a forum for people to be like, no guys, like this thing actually works, check it out because there's no comparative system. So the idea of the prize is to, to really like create an open forum in which any random idea is welcome and the only judge is like how many people how many words the people remember after a week and hopefully this is going to lead to some mad innovation and loads of cool knowledge sharing in the domain of uh, of like applied psychology uh, you know in, in that blog post in which i was announcing it i um i drew the analogy of what's at the World Memory Championships, where um, you know in 1990 the world record for memorizing a pack of cards was 149 seconds, mm. and when that person told people, they were just like, "That's obviously totally impossible. Uh, I don't believe you, etc." Um, and now the record's like 21 seconds, and you know 149 seconds would get you fifth place in the Austrian Junior Championships, and it's true of all these events that that like, there's been literally an almost linear year-by-year -year increase in the world record for memorizing information. And you're like, well, how on earth is that happening? Well, it's basically because of a community of people who innovate and share their innovations with a very, very clear metric for success. Because, you know, how many, how quickly you remember the pack of cards leads to glory or failure mm -hmm. in the championships. So um, I'm hoping that a similar thing can happen 
but not in the slightly, to be honest, narcissistic world of like trying to memorize as much as possible to be more efficient, but in a kind of slightly more general and interesting thing of like, you know, how can we create learning systems which just give this to you for free? And as I understand it, all the submissions for this, whether they win or not, will be made public afterwards. Is that is that also the case? Mm-hmm. So anybody can just like cherry pick stuff they see from these submissions and, and try it on their own too. Yeah. Uh, and so, you know, we, 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 we deliberately kind of named it like... Um, a year prize. You know, I think although it's fun as a one-off thing, it gets interesting as like a yearly event uh, because then each year can lead to more uh, focused and better integrated um, submissions the next year. And, you know, I, I kind of consider this to be an attempt at an amateur research program in a way. <laughs> and like, it's quite exciting to think what, if we could string it out for 10 years, the kind of, you know, so who knows, in the first year, there may be people, the winning entry will have the average person remembering 40 words or even 30, I don't know what the number will be, a week later. You know, who knows, in, in a few years' time, that might be like 215 <laughs> 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 or whatever. You know, those kinds of increases are perfectly possible. Yeah. You know, there's 3,600 seconds in an hour. You can form a memory in one second. The, there's no real nearby practical limits to how good it could be. It's exciting. So I think the uh, deadline, if, if somebody wanted to, to get in on this, is uh, February 28th of next year, right? Right. And how can I get more information? Like, where can I go to... There, I think there's a, um, like a little packet we can download with information. Yeah, so if you go to... Um, yeah, to, to get the kind of materials and rules and, um, and details of the thing, go to uh, memorize.com slash prize. Mm-hmm. So M-E-M-R-I-S-E dot com slash prize. Um, yeah, and then there's a bunch of explanation and you can download the materials. And, and what you have to do is submit both your methodology and your experimental data, <laughs> which sounds scary, but you could do it at home on a laptop in a garage or whatever. Basically, get five people to do our baseline control condition, which is, by the way, it's worth saying that we're doing all this in collaboration with some scientists at, at UCL, University College London, who are yeah, also reaching out to the academic community and making sure that it's it, it's it's empirically serious and the, there's no nonsense in the judging process. So they're, they're handling all of that. And yeah, so you, you run your experiment alongside the baseline condition which they provide, which is basically just like repeating the words in a bland fashion over and over. And so, you know, get five people to do your little methodology, which you could code up in Ruby in, you know, a couple of hours or a couple of weeks if you're um, feeling really enthusiastic. And, um, and, and see if you can beat that condition. And um, I imagine the best entries will be iterating in a sort of week-on-week fashion over the next uh, few months. But, but frankly, like, I mean, one of the cool things about it is that we've no idea, in fact, if the best way of memorizing something is just to, like, to scream the word as the top of your voice and jump up and down and, like, um, whatever, <laughs> spell it backwards. <laughs> you know, <laughs> like anything's possible uh, and so yeah we we cannot wait to see what gets submitted and um and hopefully like um the ideas which will emerge from it will help both us and many other educational startups and schools and so on implement a sort of better better forms of learning i i a part of me kind of hopes that the best method of learning is screaming because <laughs> that would potentially make the uh, memory competitions way more exciting if you have 50 people standing in a room screaming stuff trying to remember it. So that, that, that would be fun. Funny enough, there's an interesting uh, historical precedent for that, which is that um, a lot of these memory techniques were, were developed you know, first in ancient Greece, but subsequently in medieval monasteries where there was a quite close conception between um, 
remembering something and and understanding it and communing with mm. it. So memory was less like a storehouse and more like your whole framework for perceiving the world. Anyway, um, in medieval monasteries, the memorization practice involved using a lot of effort to say the words. In fact, in a murmur. But um, I think I think that certain medieval monasteries had the nickname like the murmury because as you went past, you could actually hear all the monks murmuring away during their memorization. So. So, you know, there's a, kind of, there's a hint of a historical precedent. Yeah, a little audio cues probably help. So something that often comes up when I get really excited about memory and I try to get somebody else excited about memory, they always come back with the reasoning that there is no reason today that we need to memorize anything. Like we have a computer in our pocket that, t- that answers every question in the entire world. You know, I don't know the phone number of anybody that I know right now. I don't know a lot of people's last names. Mm -hmm. Um, I don't know my to-do list, my grocery list, whatever, all this stuff. But I was watching a video of a talk you did, and there was one quote that stood out um, that I like to mention here, and that is, memories are means of perception. A specific example you gave was a chart that showed species of birds. You know, if I wanted to go outside in nature right now, and I go to a swamp out in my backyard, it's going to be really boring for me. I'm just going to stand out there and I'm just going to see birds flying around. But if I know specific species of birds, I will no longer be seeing random birds flying around. I will be seeing like Siberian ruby throats and eastern screeching owls. And it's going to be way more exciting because I'm going to know exactly what I'm Mm -hmm. seeing and where these birds come from and their history. I thought that was great. Can you talk a little bit more about that? Where did that where did that come from? Is that just something you've experienced? Are you memorizing lots of different things and now you're you're being able to recognize them in the wild or what's going on? Um, that idea actually um, came to me through my um, other great interest, I guess, which is, um, I guess, what you call the philosophy of perception. Mm. Perception you think of as maybe input of pure information, which is then like processed and creates an image of the world, and then that maybe accesses some memories, and you know, memory is this sort of distant storehouse. But if you if you, if you look at either the facts of perception or what it actually, when you really zoom into the concepts, must mean to perceive. Perceptions, in fact, um, always inevitably involves recognition. And the ways in which you perceive, um, as, as kind of information floods through your visual cortex, um, after incredibly short amounts of time, almost pre-consciously, you get this like enormous storm of back-propagating um, stuff from your mnemonic networks in your brain, reconfiguring what you're perceiving even before you've begun to perceive it according to the the networks of, of how you've learned to perceive the world and so for the same reason incidentally the world looks different when you're in different moods you know fundamental differences of perception are possible depending on your overall cognitive state and there are many ways in which this shows up in life and i think one of the most familiar to, to your listeners will be um how um words in obscure words in vocabulary when you learn them you'll subsequently tend to hear them mm-hmm. An absolutely preposterous number of times in the following weeks. You just say, wow, what a coincidence. I learned that word yesterday and then I've heard it seven times since. And in fact, of course, it's that the incidence of that word has been more or less evenly distributed, but you, um, but you just don't perceive it if you don't know it. And, so, and that's what's happening with the birds. If you don't have those differentiations in your memory, you don't have them in your perception. And so the, the, the kind of the strong version of this is like, okay, well, fine, like, you don't need to remember anything but that's somehow equivalent to to not having a mind yeah. <laughs> you know that yeah. you know that you know, your entire relationship to the world is actually conducted through memory and so if you want to outsource that to the dispositional possibility of looking something up on the internet 
when you won't, because that's not how you it would only when you've occurred to you to ask the question, right. then you can do that. But uh, I mean, I have to say, although that's my kind of philosophical view of the matter, and the, um, one of the reasons I think that um, the knowing things is really fun and in, undoubtedly enriches your perception and is a tremendous basis for tremendous basis for having fun. At the same time, I also acknowledge that, frankly, like knowing all your phone numbers and et cetera, et cetera, is, um, is a bit of a waste of your kind of resources. Mm-hmm. And so, I mean, the one thing I would say on the subject of, uh, of learning phone numbers is that there's an incredible feeling of freedom. In, you know, let's say you're in a sort of shipwreck, you clamber naked ashore without phone, wallet, identification, the rest of it, wander into, I think the nakedness is optional in this story, by the way. <laughs> but anyway, you wander, you wander into a phone booth and then you can... Um, you can ring anybody you know immediately because <laughs> you just know their numbers. It's just super cool. Yeah, that's true. Um, that one specific as, scenario, as, I think, is where it would be useful. Yeah. Well, there's just, there's just nothing more pathetic than um, than like a bunch of grown adults who've like run out of battery, being reduced to the kind of the cognitive equivalent of a small toddler, <laughs> uh, you know, like uh, unable to navigate their own homes. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. Uh, but so, I mean, to, to kind of give a third part to that answer, um, what is worth remembering? You know, I think that um, we have the opportunity to devote those that time and resource to, you know, remembering what we read and um, facts and concepts, which are kind of which align with our interests and which can, you know, enrich in our perception of the world. And so, for instance, books are a really good example. Very often, you'll read a great book. Um, you'll be like, wow, that was like an entire lifetime of conceptual experience in six hours. Great. Finish it. And then you know, within a very short amount of time, you can just have a couple of fragmentary anecdotes and like a vague and a, and a few opinions normally. Mm-hmm. Just like, yeah, definitely equality is really important. Um, and there's something about like, oh, I can't, can't quite remember why. And so, yeah, one, one thing I try to do is having finished a book, immediately actively recall the book just on a sheet of A4 or whatever, just try and write out what I can remember. And by the way, when you begin doing that, if you try this, mm-hmm. your first thought is, I don't remember a thing. And then subsequently, uh, you're like, okay, well, I remember that bit. Oh, no, that, oh, yeah, that connects with that. So you bring it out, and actually often you kind of get quite, you get you go, oh, wow, yeah. And as you're writing it, you're actually understanding it because the process of, of recall, the process of active like um, discovery of this information often helps configure it mm. and connect it. And then so you've done that, and so you, that's already a huge help to your memory, just doing that. Even if you threw it away then, that would probably double your attention or something of the book. But then if you kind of come back to that sheet a week later or a month later or whenever it occurs to you, just keep it in the back of the book or, or in a file in your, uh, in your computer, then you can really begin to sort of assemble and connect very interesting and sort of um, and like imaginatively um, amusing basis of knowledge. So it t- turns out taking notes while you're reading is actually a good thing. I wouldn't actually, not while you're reading. Not while you're no, reading? Okay, you're reading. after? Uh, after the whole thing, basically, I'd say. After the whole thing, okay. So when you're not memorizing or running your business that has to do with learning and memorizing, memorize.com, yeah. what do you do? Do you have any other hobbies or interests that you participate in? Well, yeah, I mean, it's, it's basically the opposite of memory. It's oblivion. But I'm quite interested in um, sort of um, what I call eccentric states of consciousness, such as um, going to sleep and um, certain forms of meditation and hyper-attunement to... I'm very interested in colors. Mm. I quite like looking at colors. 
one of my favourite sort of part-time activities. I run this club in London called the um, London Experimental Psychonautics Club, uh-huh. and um, it's basically about you know just recreational amateur ways of um, like discussing and examining the kind of relationship between by the world. You know, which might be you know some people there are great enthusiasts for hallucinogens and can talk in you know great detail and very illuminatingly about. What that reveals about the mind, some people are into meditation, mm-hmm. some people uh, are just sort of interested in thought. Um, and uh, yeah, we bundle these together under the term psychonautics, you know, astronauts of the mind, basically, and travelers of the mind. And um, yeah, and that's, um, that's a great source of, of amusement and interest. Yeah. Yeah, that sounds really interesting. I'm going to have to look that up, especially the staring at colors part. Yeah, staring at colors is really good, good fun. I mean, I, I, if I can briefly explain how to make that really, really fun. Please. Which is that you, um, you basically have to... Um, Fix in on with your eyes closed, and you're not actually experiencing any color. Fix in on the the mystery of color, which is roughly like the question, you know, are my, are my colors the same as your colors? Mm. And you know, I can see why everything else in the universe looks like it does. Square things look square. You know, big things are big. Heavy things just are heavy. Colored things, which seems to be very much a kind of not to correspond to something obvious in the world and what it does correspond to doesn't seem to resemble the experience so like a square table you know your experience of a square table resembles a square thing so you're like okay reality and consciousness matching up same thing for a heavy thing but um, when it comes to color and smell and certain other secondary qualities um, and this by the way has caused philosophers huge confusion over the years but when it comes to colors and smells there doesn't seem to be any relationship and so the fun thing to do to really dig into the mystery of color is basically just to sit on that philosophical problem and be like, that redness, which I'm not looking at now, but which I can remember and imagine, you know, in what sense does that correspond to the surface of this object? And if you kind of spend a long time thinking about that, you kind of get right into the kind of the wheelhouse of the relationship between self and world. And you're like, well, what is this relationship? You know, how is the self a container which inputs like, tablets of consciousness which then glow with redness but no that can't make sense you know so you don't have to come on any any solutions and you know um i wouldn't say that many philosophers have come up with a kind of coherent story about what's actually happening here um but anyway it's enough just to feel the confusion and to sort of hyper focus on it and if you've done that for like half an hour and then you open your eyes and look at a color that color can seem like the most ecstatic and incredible thing you can possibly imagine, like an eruption of um, impossible beauty and weird, like mystical significance. That's quite, that's quite a good way to spend half an hour. I might try that today. <laughs> cool. You got a with, with the color, I think I'll start with the color red. It seems like a bold color. Yeah, yeah. Start with red. It's a, yeah. <laughs> I think. That would be a good place to finish up if, if that's good with you. I mean, I want to be sensitive to your time. Um, I know it's you're in London, so. Yeah, I do. Well, thank you very much, Chris. This has been really fun chatting. Yeah, I had I had a wonderful time. No, my pleasure. And I will, if I um, pop past Portland, I'll, I'll nip in and say hi. Oh, please do. We can, we can look at some colors. <laughs> can you look at some colors? <laughs> yeah, or maybe memorize a bus table. A time table or yeah, yeah. that'd be excellent. So that's all we have for this week. If you want to start memorizing something today, head on over to Memorize.com and learn how to memorize a foreign language or shuffle deck of playing cards or really whatever you want. If you want to find the show notes for this week's episode, go to HealthyHacker.com slash 17. And if you have a question or comment or something you want to share on the show, leave me a voicemail at HealthyHacker.com slash voicemail. 